Welcome to episode 311 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Black. Welcome back to another episode. Brian, amber is the color of your energy. Whoa. <laughs> Did I kind of hit that? Rainstorm. <laughs> Take me away from the norm. Yeah. No one's going to get these references. <laughs> okay. Are you kidding? I suppose maybe 50% of our audience will understand what's happening right now. This is our 311 dedication episode. <laughs> yeah. I think we need to have a sidebar about frosted tips, Brian. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, welcome back to Design Details. Yeah. 311's a special episode for us and also for the members of the band called 311. There you go. Show notes if you're curious. <laughs> <laughs> Show notes if you haven't listened to 311. Uh, yeah. But we got a fun episode. We've got a little bit of follow-up, some listener questions, and no sponsor to lead us in. So let's jump right in, Marshall. we got some follow-up. Blamo. Yeah, I have a real quick uh, fact check on myself. Uh, the name of the show from my cool things from last week, I said was Mind Hunters. Mm-mm, Brian, not plural. That shit's singular. Correct. <laughs> yeah, it's Mind Hunter, which... Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but fine, whatever. There's more than one character on the show, but okay, I'll take it. Yeah, you got to have a, a single protagonist, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, I cut out a part of the episode where I referred to one of the characters as Donna from the 70s show. It's not Donna from that 70s show. It's the lady from Fringe, if you remember Fringe, that TV show. I don't know Fringe. Yeah, she's, well, the main female character on the show. She's Australian, Brian. <gasps> What? She's not even American. Her accent is impeccable. It's amazing. Like, yeah, the ability to fake American accents is uh, really impressive amongst our Australian and English friends. Mm -hmm. They they do us way better than we do them. Okay, well, good to know. Mind Hunter. Yeah, I try to uh, I try to be you know very specific in in my in my information that I give out, and sometimes I fuck it up. So yeah, Anna Torv is is the actress, and and I cut it out so so nobody could be like. That's not Donna from that '70s show, but here I'm, I'm. I'm admitting to a thing you didn't even hear me get wrong. You've also right. unveiled the fact that you do edit out the mistakes that you make uh, every time, every episode, <laughs> Brian. We say it at the end of every episode too. They make us sound smarter than we are. How do you think yeah. they do that by cutting out the stupid shit we say? Yeah, and then we come back through and say, "Oh, by the way, there's a stupid shit we said that you didn't hear." But yeah, there's even more stupid shit that you <laughs> just yeah. so you know. It's mostly me though. Mostly me. I cut. Nah, I don't know. Uh, I think you're just more self-aware of the things that you say, or self-conscious of the things you say. Internet is a permanent place. It's going to live forever, Brian. Forever and ever. Aliens will be listening in 10,000 years. (laughs) All right, let's do a show here. So uh, that was my follow-up. You have follow-up? Yeah, two things. So last week we talked about our experiment for moving listener questions over to our GitHub repository for design details. Yeah, boy. Where each question is asked as an issue, and then we can respond on the issue and close it once that question is answered. And we got a few people that asked questions. So thank you, everyone who did that. Uh, We're going to answer some of those today. And then continuing forward, let's just keep trying this experiment. So if you have questions for us, we have a link in the show notes to our GitHub repository, but it's just github.com slash specfm slash design hyphen details. And uh, we'll be using issues to answer and track listener questions. If you want to ask something anonymously, of course, feel free to direct message us on Twitter and then I will ask it for you in the issues. Or I think you can email Brian at hi at brianlovin.com. Is that right? Correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. As a sidebar to this, Manny on Twitter asked, where did the side project, listener side project review segment go? And that's a great question, Manny, because we haven't done it in a long time. I think we only ever did it maybe twice. Yeah, once or twice, very early on. Very early 
I don't know. I don't know that we got a super strong signal on whether that segment was good or not. I think it's a, a tricky segment to pull off because you're reviewing something, you know, in the spoken word where we might be talking about interactions or visuals or typography or color. But to answer your question, Manny, I think we're still open to doing it. So let's use this GitHub repo for that as well. So if you want your side project reviewed or, or you know, have feedback for the show, questions about the show, like let's move all of that to the GitHub issues and continue this experiment. Uh, as long as it's working, we'll do it there. Otherwise, we can revert back to just Twitter DMs in the future. But I, I sort of like the public search engine indexable thing so that if a question's answered, people will be able to find it and reference it in the future. Yeah, but also like we can track. So when you have your question asked, you can know exactly when it was answered and see the episode it was from. Or if you have the same question, you can see how we answered it already. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a better way to organize it. So I'm, I'm proud of you for thinking of it, Brian. Hopefully people <laughs> use it. But we have gotten several issues already. So this is this is good. It's a good start. So on that note, let's answer a couple of the questions. Okay. Issue number one, Brian. Issue numero uno. What a special I've never one. seen an issue count so low. <laughs> it's just issues slash one. It's usually like a six-digit number or something. It's beautiful, yeah. All right, you want to read us our first GitHub listener question? Okay, so our first GitHub listener question is from a friend of the pod, Sam Chang. Also, Sam Chang sucks, if I remember correctly, on, on Twitter. Uh-huh. Uh, the eminently rememberable... Uh, username. Okay, so Sam asks, I'm curious about your thoughts on including project case studies on your website. Is it something you do only when you're actively looking for work? And then he uh, references an article about case studies and asks us to read that. So we did, and, or, or I glanced through it. <laughs> it's a long, long article. But yeah, beautiful blog post. Yeah, it's one of those. Uh, Brian, you've, you've mentioned this before. I forget the guy's name, but you've referenced very bespoke UX articles before that each one is kind of designed to be its own thing. It's not just like part of a template. And this feels yep. like that. Yeah. With some cool interactions. There's a gear that spins as you scroll down. There's numbers that like push each other out of the way. Like check it check it out on a desktop. It's really good. Yeah, the person that we're thinking of here is Claudio Guglieri, who's been on the show before. But Claudio on his website, Guglieri, he he used to do all these blog posts that were these like custom designed. He would redo his whole website to be about this one blog post with like custom photography and iconography. It was really, really cool. And those exist still today, but his website is fantastic. So that's Claudio. But yeah, so I think the point that this article is making is that UX case studies have become formulaic and talks about how to break out of that. And then, you know, tied in with Sam's question, like, should you even include case studies on your website? What's your thought on that, Marshall? I mean, if the goal is to get a job out of, you know, if the if the purpose of the case study is to, you know, get you employed, then yeah, I think it's good because one of the things that that your potential employees will be curious about about you is like do you have a good process do you know how to take something from concept to launch and having a case study is a good way of showing your thought process and knowing that, uh, letting them know that you understand what the you know sequence of steps is that needs to be taken in general to get something out the door but yeah, I think what you were referencing earlier as far as the homogeneity of some of these case studies, they can start to blend together and everything starts to look the same. And that's definitely a fear. But like I said, it, I think it depends on your seniority. Like if you're if you've already have established 
you know, reputation that you can launch things, it's probably less necessary to, to do a full case study on your website or like write a medium article or anything like that. But if you're just coming out of college or if you're just, you know, getting started, they can be more valuable. You just want to make sure that the case study you're showing is doesn't look like every other case study on the internet, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think my perspective on this is if you are looking for work, sure, you should probably have a portfolio or, you know, case study somewhere. But there is also another value to having these published at all times, which is just helping other people learn and providing reference for people that, yeah. you know, might be more junior than you or younger than you, or people just curious about your actual company. Like if you worked on an interesting project, helping people see behind the scenes of how you navigate tough problems is doesn't always have to be about you. Like sometimes people will just be inherently interested in the work itself. So I think that's a good reason to leave the case studies up. But I think if I had to, you know, describe the common pattern that I've seen amongst designers is once people get a job, they tend to take their portfolio offline or not really update it regularly because <laughs> it served the purpose. Are you talking about me, Brian? No, no, no. Nothing about you, Marshall. <laughs> you throwing shade, Brian? No, not at all. You know, I, I think my perspective, at least on your personal website, is it's your personal website. It's your playground. You should put whatever you want up there. You should use it as a, a surface to explore, to learn new things, to try new technologies. And if building case studies is part of your learning experience or just having fun, then sure, leave them up. Otherwise, yeah, it seems like they tend to just be for people who are actively looking for work. Although I, I will say, I know people who will update case studies or, or write new case studies, even when they're not looking for work. And I think it's more of a, a discipline from a discipline perspective. Like mm -hmm. I don't want all this thing, all this information that I learned and, and mistakes that I made to just be forgotten. Like I want to have some retention of this, even if it's just for myself. Yeah. Document. Yeah. I think you just need to figure out like what's important to you in the case by case, like each project, do you want that documented somewhere? Do you want it documented publicly? Will it be useful to people even when you're not looking for, for work, just people browsing? So hopefully that helped uh, answer your question, Sam. The The article that you referenced is is a pretty good resource to, to pull from. I'm not sure if we added a whole lot to that conversation, but uh, yeah, interesting question for sure. Link in the show notes for people who also want to check out that article. And it, the article that Sam shared is also really well designed and has some cool touches as well. So if you just for sure want to see a nice little website, go click on that. Okay, cool. So we got another question. This is from uh, listener Lucas Morales, and he asks... Part of the design process is making sure clients and stakeholders are on board with the team's designs and to make sure it gets approved and shipped. But what can we do when this bureaucracy ends up taking the majority of our time at work? How much should a designer fight working for products and clients where it takes an uphill battle to get things shipped versus leaving and going somewhere with more mature processes where they'll probably get more design done for the portfolio? <sighs> that is a hard, hard question. It's also pretty stark, the two choices you offered, which is like... Leave or... Suffer or leave. <laughs> slog yeah. through shit, yeah. I think my gut reaction on this is, yeah, it's like there's a third path here, which takes a lot more upfront work, but pays dividends should you decide to stay at that job, like whether you like the product or the team or the environment, and that's instituting better process and easier said than done. But I think that some ways that you could approach that are arguing about how better process is better for the business, like making it a financial equation for stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So if you're arguing, we need a better process so that, you know, our, our final result is more polished and 
uh, has better interactions and animations. Like nobody gives a shit except for maybe you, <laughs> uh, for being honest. Like if this is a bureaucracy problem with management or the executive team. But if you say, look, our process is slowing us down so much that we're shipping half as much, half as many features as we should be, which is resulting in, you know, we're not solving as many problems, which means that we're not getting as much revenue from customers who are paying us to solve their problems. Mm -hmm. Then it seems to become a more compelling starting point for the conversation. Like, okay, our process is causing us to lose money. How do we fix the process? So making it financial is perhaps like a starting point, one angle to make a better case that doesn't require you leaving and doesn't require you to just kind of keep putting up with the same shit. I would also add that, you know, what we talked about two episodes ago about career progression for designers is whenever I hear problems like this of the process sucks or the process is bureaucratic or we're not shipping the things that we want to ship, it's like, ooh, this is a juicy opportunity for you to fix that and put it on your perf. Mm -hmm. And not only is it great experience from like a problem solving point of view, like, oh, here was this broken thing. We figured out how to fix it. But I also think it demonstrates a lot of leadership, demonstrates a lot of like community building. Like you have to rally a bunch of stakeholders and work with different kinds of people. Like those are really valuable skills for just career progression overall. And if you were to move to a more well-oiled machine, you're not going to have that opportunity to build up some credibility in those areas around, you know, leadership and community building within an organization. So mm -hmm. yeah, maybe you could look at it as an opportunity unless as a shitty situation, although I do understand that that's so easy for us to say on this side of the microphone. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, okay, what about, what if the source of this red tape is like two levels, three levels above the person asking the question, right? Yeah, I mean, again, I would just try and frame it in a way that the people who are introducing that red tape feel compelled to listen or, or make it institute a change. And if those people are motivated by financials, then make it a financial conversation. If they're motivated by product quality, make it a product quality conversation, like figure out the incentive structure of the people that are doing the blocking mm -hmm. and tailor that conversation to them, you know, sort of a know your audience problem. Yeah. Especially if they can potentially bend it so that they can take partial credit for the process updates that get rid of some of the bureaucracy of like, you know, the higher up you go, the more impact you should be having on the company as a whole. And if, and as you said earlier, if, if the process is losing the company money, it would behoove this upper management person to make a change that would improve the revenue of the company. So, right. you know, hit them where it is going to be most effective. If that's about, you know, employee happiness, then use that as your argument. If it's about income, that's, that's a, a good argument too. Yeah. So I think that's one way to think about it. And as you know, as we're sitting here talking through this, it's like, I don't know, maybe that's too simple because this stuff can be really painful within an organization. Oh, yeah. And I've been thinking about like, what are some of the root causes of organizational dysfunction, hmm. especially on the design side where it's like people micromanaging design decisions or requiring broad consensus before designs are shipped. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this underlying problem of trust that can spring up in a lot of organizations where it's not even that the designs are good or bad. It's that people don't trust that they'll be good or bad. It's like everything is up in the air and having an organization where there's inherent trust, I think results in less bureaucracy. Like there's no need for as much process. If you just trust that the other person's doing the right thing mm -hmm. and assume that any changes aren't done out of 
you know, malice, maliciousness. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as we, we've been answering, I'm like, well, what if this is an, a trust problem that's really deep in the organization's DNA? Like, you're not going to change that by yourself. Yeah. So, you know, as with all things, it falls back to it depends. I think we've outlined a third path. Like, maybe this is salvageable. There's an opportunity for you to change the process and, like, get people on board and learn how to, to lead this thing. But I could also understand a scenario where the bureaucracy is so deep, the process is so micro and painful to go through because there's no trust within the organization. Or there's no chance of the perpetrators of the red tape to ever change their ways, right? Yeah. And in that case, like, sure, leave, right? Like, your time is valuable. And you'll probably have an exit interview. When you do leave, you'll probably have an <laughs> yeah. exit interview where they ask you why you're leaving. And that's your opportunity to say, yo, this is why I'm, I've left and this part's fucked up and you should fix it. And here are my suggestions for fixing it. It didn't work when I was there, but maybe you can do it after I'm gone. If you if you leave and don't suggest improvements that weren't possible while you were there, like it's it's more likely that the severity of your departure will kick things into gear than just being like, I'm unhappy, you know? Yeah. Sometimes that will draw more attention to a problem than than just complaining about it and sticking around. Yeah. And the problem with that, I mean, it's a good point, but you don't get to see the fruit of that if you are giving an exit interview. You're falling on the sword so that others can walk over your corpse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I hope that's helpful, Lucas. I think if you're stuck in a situation where things are hopeless, then maybe, yeah, it's time to like explore other new opportunities. Mm -hmm. But in general, look at an obstacle as an opportunity. Yeah, any obstacle is an opportunity. So as naive as that might sound, I'm sure you're slogging through some, some shit. Hopefully it'll be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that helped. It depends, Brian. It depends. Classic. <laughs> yeah. Classic design details answer. But true, nonetheless. Okay, so hopefully that helps. Let's do a third question here. Final, last one. Okay, Brian, this is uh, anonymous. They ask, I think you added this actually, and that's kind of interesting. So if you ask something anonymously through Twitter DMs or email or whatever, we'll, we'll add it to this repo. But Brian asks... <laughs> <laughs> I do not ask. <laughs> Brian asks, for anonymous, I'm a junior UI designer, and I was wondering how you would describe a good product experience from a visual design perspective. <laughs> oh boy. All right. So anonymous, I, I have a sort of hand wavy answer and we'll try and get a little bit more specific, but I think, how would you describe a good product experience from a visual design perspective? I think the answer is when the visual design is in service of the product experience. Yes, sir. And so for example, are you using color for the sake of using color? Or are you using color to build meaningful relationships with content, with mapping color to a metaphor within your product? Is the color being used to, to guide a person's eyes to a certain place or warn people about a certain thing? Like, is something red because it's bad, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's where the visuals are directly correlated to what the it will feel like to use that product. Mm -hmm. and, and likewise, you know, like with with white space or with typography, with organizing content, like content close to each other, like, you know, this whole proximity, like these are all visual considerations that result in different ways of people using your product. So are, are like actions put next to like actions? Are, are the things that you want people to do 
distinct in some way, whether it's with color or size or white space. Like, mm -hmm. Is there a consistency in the narrative of the choices you've made as far as the system goes? Like, does, does this color button always mean the same thing? Does this shape object always mean the same thing? So yeah, I mean, I, I'm in the same place. I, I feel like what is a good product experience from a visual design perspective? A good product experience is one that is, yeah, self-consistent and uses the power of visual design to help drive the interface consistency and the uh, user experience and the ability for the user to accurately predict what will happen before they take an action. Yeah, predict, understand, even like building metaphors for things. So for example, like just because I'm staring at this GitHub issue, one thing that comes to mind for me is the way GitHub uses colors. So when you create issues and pull requests, there's this green label that says that they're open. Mm -hmm. And when they're closed, you get a red label. And for pull requests, when they're merged, they get a purple label. So if you ever see purple anywhere on GitHub, it's referring to a merged pull request. Like you can't just make purple things purple for no reason. Like it's built into the system now that this purple indicates that we're talking about a merged pull request so that users can really quickly understand the content and the context that they're they're in. But at the same time, you can't entirely rely on purple because some people can't see purple, right? So you need to have some sort of glyph or a shape that is also you know, identifiable as that thing, right? It's almost always a purple label with a specific merged glyph with the text merged. But for those that have the ability to see purple, like that's much faster than reading the text. It's glanceable, it's scannable. But okay, so I'm, I'm also looking at this GitHub issues page and, and I'll have a counter argument to this. So uh -huh. for example, there there are three green objects on this, on this screen. Uh -huh. Two of them are buttons. One of them is disabled for me at the moment, the comment button but it's also still green, uh, so it draws my attention. But there's, there's a third thing, which is that open label that re you referred to earlier. It has essentially the same styling as the buttons. It has like a two-dip rounded corner. It's green. It doesn't have a gradient like the buttons do, but at first glance, it looks very, very similar, right? And this is the type of thing of like, well, that new issue button, that new issue green button is clickable, but this open badge is not clickable, even though they have a very similar styling. This is what I was getting at with like user prediction. It's like these things look the same, but they don't function the same. They don't mean the same thing. Yep. So I would consider changing the styling of one or the other to differentiate them so that the visual story is consistent. Yeah, I think we could <laughs> probably spend time doing some critique on GitHub, but that's probably not the right setting for this since I work there. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> shit on your product. No, no, yeah. no. Like, I, okay, so here's another example. Like, If you're looking at a long list of comments, the comments that you posted sort of get this blue tint, like a blue, light blue border. Kind of like a, a chat where I, I say blue things, you say gray things. Yeah, yeah. Like that is where visual design is in service of the product experience because that visual is cueing you into whether or not you even need to read the thing, right? Like, I don't need to read anything. If I see that there's this blue tint, I understand it's something that I asked. I can see where I fit in the broader conversation. Unless I'm looking for something that I asked specifically, and yeah. then I can easily scan. Yep. Yeah. So anyways, I, hopefully this was coherent. <laughs> but I think <laughs> yeah, our, our answer is the visual, a good experience from a visual design perspective is one in which the visuals service the experience and not are just visuals for visuals sake. Correct. Like are things the way they are for a reason. Yep, yep, yep. Totally. That doesn't mean things can't be pretty. They should be. They should be pretty. Not just pretty. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that was three questions. You got any cool things, Brian? I do. This one is, it's my cool thing, 
for the week, but it is from somebody else. This one comes from Gabriel Valdivia, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Gabe said, I need to check out this YouTube channel. He said, Marshall's going to love this because it's a YouTube channel. And I said, ah, Marshall's probably already subscribed to this channel. That's the minimum requirements. Is it a YouTube channel? I'm going to love it. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a YouTube channel called Corridor Crew. Have you heard of this one before? Yeah, dude. Oh, shit. I love it. Well, actually, there's two channels. Corridor Crew is their behind-the-scenes stuff. They have another one called Corridor Digital. Of course you know all the backstory and the lore of (laughs) the Corridor Crew. (laughs) Well, if if you're going to recommend the thing that I think you're going to recommend, I've been watching these videos, so so go ahead. Okay, so Corridor Crew is videos of VFX artists reacting to VFX in films. Did I get that right? Yeah, well, so the company name is Corridor Digital, and that channel, they put out, like, the work that they've done. And Corridor Crew is their kind of behind-the-scenes stuff where you, like, meet the people at Corridor, and you and they do, like, weird behind-the-scenes stuff. So they show you how they made the videos. They also have a series like this where they sit on the couch and they analyze VFX that are both good and bad. They have one where they have a, a stunt guy, and they analyze stunts that are good and bad. So, like, they have several series. And this is one of them. Okay, cool. Just for clarity. Yeah, so I watched the video of the artists reacting to Marvel's bad and good CGI. Uh-huh. And it, it's actually just really funny because they're humorous people. They have a good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I like Clint. He's funny. Yeah, but you can also learn a lot. So like they will zoom in on things like still you know, pause the film at this point in time and zoom in and point out specific things like, oh, that thing is actually really technically impressive. And to pull that off takes an incredible amount of work. And most people might not ever notice it, but we noticed it. And so now everybody else can sort of hone in and, and see these tiny details. Like, for example, the, the detail that they shared, which I, I just, you notice it by watching the film, but you wouldn't ever really understand like, oh, that's why that looks so real. And they, they're talking about Thanos's skin and the way that when it's really zoomed in on his skin, the micro wrinkles stretch as he's talking the pores stretch and they zoom in and show how that works. And they're like, yeah, that's actually really technically impressive. And they show it on themselves too. Like here's, here's real life. Watch me smile. Look how my pores stretch. All right. Now look at this shot of Thanos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyways, uh, that's the corridor crew channel, not new to Marshall, but was new to me and maybe will be new to some of you. So yeah, check that out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. I'm, I'm so glad you recommended that. Cause that was something that I've been considering recommending for a little while. Oh shit. Beat you to it. Well, that also came from Gabe. So I, I didn't find it, but, uh, now I know about it. Cool. Cool thing, Brian. My cool thing is also a YouTube channel. (laughs) Cool, cool. Devil. So this is another video game thing. So maybe people won't care, but uh, I think it's really cool from a design perspective. So the name of this channel is No Clip, which is a video game reference if you (laughs) know what clipping means, but they make documentaries of like behind the scenes of how games were made. I think I recommended the Kratos, like the the God of War documentary. Uh They have several series that they've done in addition to that God of War. So there's one on Bethesda, so making the Fallout 76 game. There's one on Doom, like the new Doom game. There's one for The Witcher. It's really interesting. Horizon Zero Dawn was a really good one, Warframe. So the newest one that they have out is the, the newest Hitman game. And if you know anything about the Hitman series, they they come across as like it's an assassination game and you're just trying to kill people. But it's not that. It's a puzzle game if you really get down to it. And they create this basically walled in environment where 
everybody kind of does their own thing. It's like it, within this little microcosm, every human in this area has their own tasks and their own, their own things that they do. And they're kind of on a track of behaviors that you can analyze and use to your advantage to like make an assassination happen. So ultimately it's like a, a puzzle game behind the scenes. So they talked to the people who made this game and all of the design decisions and, and weird... The design details? Yeah, all the design details that are that are necessary to make something like this work in a way that is like believable from a human. You know what I mean? Fuck, this is cool. It's a huge undertaking. There are several episodes. I think there's like five different episodes in this, uh, or four or five different in, in, in this Hitman series, and they are just so interesting to watch. Uh, not only the history of the studio, but also just like the design problems they had to overcome, you know, and they're huge, huge things to think about. I, I found it really fascinating to watch. So I have one queued up called Designing Mortal Kombat Fatalities. Oh, uh, yep, yep. <laughs> Which are like designing, okay, so Mortal Kombat Fatalities are the most ridiculous, over-the-top, gratuitous, gory, violent, gory, yeah. violent things I've ever seen in video games. So yep. yeah, how do they come up with these? This looks fun. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's completely supported by Patreon, if I'm not mistaken. They have a membership on on YouTube, so if you want to give them money that way, you can too. But as far as I know, they are completely fan supported. So if you like what they do and like me, you want to contribute to them, they have a Patreon, which I'll put in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Sorry, I'm watching this Mortal Kombat video <laughs> okay. now. Yeah, dude. Uh... I don't know how they think of this shit. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. All right. Well, cool thing. Two good channels. Yeah. yeah. If, yeah hopefully you have free time to watch YouTube because this shit is good. Hopefully you can yeah, watch you're it. You're going to get sucked into the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. You don't even need a rabbit hole. Like these things just stay on in, in this lane and you'll, you'll have plenty of content to watch. Right. Really good shit. Cool. Well, that's uh, episode 311. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. If you have your own questions, suggestions, feedback, side projects you want us to take a look at, open an issue on our design details repo. We'll have a link to that in the show notes and we'll be using that to, you know, keep track of and organize all the conversations that we have with everyone who's listening. So please do that. We uh, enjoyed answering these first few questions from here. So thank you for the people who posted these. Yes. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, jumping on the new system so quickly. It was awesome. And, and it's so efficient, so efficient, so effective. It's great. It's such a perfect framework for questions, right? Like answered or unanswered. If you need more podcasts, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just like you. Design details and other podcasts on the spec network are produced by Sarah and Drew, our editors and producers, who, as we have pointed out, make us sound smarter than we actually are. So thank you once again, Sarah and Drew, for another episode. Thank you. And with that, uh, we're done. We'll catch you next week. And now to wrap up the show, here's Marshall Bach reading lyrics from the popular band from the late 90s and early 2000s, 311. We've changed a lot, and then some more. Know that we have always been down, down. And if I ever didn't thank you, you, then just let me do it now. Thank you. Bye.